When it's cold outside, thanks to Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, you'll be warm and toasty inside. Right now, put no money down, no payments, and no interest for up to two years at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Marquette University Law School poll, which will be their final poll before the election Um, It's going to come out in about 15 to 20 minutes. We will give you the update on that. There was a Fox News poll that came out yesterday. Ron Johnson ahead by two. Tim Michaels ahead by one, which is both of those are within the margin of error. If you look at if you look at the blending of polls, the, the average the average poll shows Ron Johnson ahead by about three to four points. And I think that's where the race is. The governor's race, Michaels and Evers, I, I think it, it's pretty much of a toss up. And I will we'll see what the Marquette Law School poll says. But I think that's a race that could ultimately go either way. We will discuss that when the numbers come out. But I want to start with a story that it's another one of these that just gets you shaking your head. From Fox 6, Greenfield Police, four arrested. We almost smoked you guys. Here's the story. Video shows the pursuit that led to four people being arrested in Greenfield. The, poli- the pursuit started with a call that might sound familiar involving reports of a stolen Kia. Officers were surprised by who they found inside. Around 3 a.m. on Saturday, October 22nd, video shows a silver Kia swerved between traffic lanes down Loomis Road. So this is 3 o'clock in the morning. Greenfield police were close behind. Other officers set out stop sticks, but it was ultimately a, a pit maneuver that stopped the Kia. That's where they. Um, that's where the officers like bang into the back of the car and they try to like get it to swerve and knock it off the road. All right, four individuals inside the car sprinted into Scout Lake Park. A Greenfield police officer drove after them, eventually placing one of the individuals in handcuffs. Greenfield police said the group is connected to three stolen cars and a stolen firearm. One of the individuals bragged to the officers about how they almost got away. We almost smoked you guys, <laughs> the person said to the officer. Almost and did are not the same thing, the officer said. Even the officers, though, were surprised to learn how old the person was. Okay, now let's, let me just put that out there. So you've got four people. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. They are driving a stolen vehicle. Um, a search of the vehicle, by the way, determined that there was a firearm in the car as well. So I just want you to sit there and think about 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, high-speed pursuit, car, they try to stop it with stop sticks. That doesn't work. They use the pit maneuver. That ultimately takes it, takes it out of commission. Four people get out of the car. They start to run. They catch one whose first response is, man, we almost smoked you guys. All right, would you like to guess how old that person was? 18? Wrong. 17? Nope. 16? No. 15? Nope. 14 years old. The officers found out the guy that they caught was 14.
18 years old. Um, Ultimately, after they caught the first 14-year-old, they were able to apparently identify, you know, the other people who were involved, and they ended up catching them as well. The officers offered advice to the young person in the back seat. I tell you what, it seems like you're a good kid. If you want to play with guns and drive real fast, there's a job for it. It's called being a police officer. And there, there hasn't been any more comments on this. But you've got four, I think it's all, I think they're all 14, four 14-year-olds driving the stolen car 3 o'clock in the morning. 3 o'clock in the morning. And again, it's the high-speed chase, the typical sort of thing. And then once the car stops, some of them try to run away. Now they ultimately get caught by the cops. But they are 14 years old. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, in Milwaukee County, a district attorney will not try to waive these people into adult court. That, that's just, it's not going to happen. They don't do that for 14-year-olds. So this is going to be treated, I guess, as a juvenile matter. My question, what I want to start off the program discussing is, what should happen to these What should happen to these people? And does it make any difference? Does it make any difference if the 14-year-olds, this was the first brush with the juvenile justice system or the third or fourth? Or is this crime? They've got the stolen car. There's a gun. They flee from the cops at a high rate of speed. They try to run once the car is disabled. All right, is this the type of thing that in and of itself, regardless of their record, these kids need to be sent to juvenile detention? Or do you just tell them not to do it again? Do you send them back to mom and dad with instructions? Well, you know, be careful. Next time you do this, you know, something really bad is going to happen to you. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. If we're ever going to be serious about stopping this type of behavior, it's got to start now. And I don't care, again, what their record is. This is the type of criminal activity, and yeah, it's criminal activity, that adult or juvenile needs to be punished, and it seems to me that, yeah, there's got to be a form of juvenile attention, because if there's not, you know darn well that within the next two months, they'll be out stealing more cars as well. 855-616-1620, that's a WTMJ talk and text line. What do you do with the kids? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. It's another one of these stories, but unfortunately it's not unique. Greenfield police get the report, stolen car, driving erratically, 3 o'clock in the morning. They go to pull it over. The car takes off. They then have to you know, execute various maneuvers. Ultimately, they're able to force the car to stop. Occupants get out and run. They catch them 14 years old. 14 years old. And one of the 14-year-olds says to the cops, hey, we, we almost smoked you meaning that we we almost got away from this. Okay, well, they didn't. So what do you do with them now? One of our texters, Jeff, send them back to mom and dad. If they had a mom and dad who cared, they wouldn't be acting like this. They need to be punished. Well, there's something about that. Let's start with Rob in Port Washington. Rob, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I think it's a simple thing to take care of it. You have to put it back onto the parents. I mean, what are these kids doing at that age out at that time in the morning? So I just think that the parents have to take responsibility, and then they're going to keep their kids home and keep them out of trouble. they got to find something at home for them to do, and they should be sleeping anyways. Isn't it amazing? And I understand times have changed, but I mean, think back to when you were 14, Rob. The, 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 yeah. Can you imagine being 
gun, stolen car, high-speed chase with cops. I mean, it's just, it's something that's just beyond the pale. I, I can't even imagine, I can't imagine doing something like that at 24, but at 14, you know, your, your parents know where you are, or at least they're supposed to. Just the respect and everything now for law enforcement. I mean, when I was young, I'm 62 right now. When I was younger, you had respect for law enforcement. Sure, you got into your little bit of trouble, but it's just getting out of hand. And I think that if I got into trouble and it came back on my parents, I know what they did to me. Well, yeah, that's the—I mean, right, thanks for the call. That. That's the other thing that's out there. It, it, again, it's that, it's that feeling of, and it's that sense of responsibility that's there. Jeff, unfortunately, I don't think what needs to be done will be done with these young criminals. If they won't be sent in the adult system, and they won't, then they need to be put in the juvenile system with an extensive time served and strict time served. Slapping on the risks as they're doing now isn't working, to which, you know, the congregation says amen. That's, that is the underlying problem here. For the longest time with the quote-unquote juvenile justice system, we have taken this approach that, all right, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Opie throwing, throwing rocks, you know, in, at, at a window in, at, in, in, in Mayberry. That's not what goes on here. If these are 14 years old, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and they're leading cops on a high-speed chase. Jeff, I think you wave them into adult court. Well, I'm just going to tell you the reality is the district attorney's not even going to try to do that. Now, maybe if in the high-speed chase they lost control and hit and killed somebody, which is entirely possible, maybe then they would look at it. But I think that's doubtful um, there. Jeff, people must be living in virtual reality. The parents simply don't care. Well, I mean, I think that's a tough thing to say, but I think it's also kind of fair. Jeff, I think we have to start charging the parents somehow. Parents, do you know where your children are? Well, that brings me to the point. Do you remember last summer after you had the the shooting in the Deer District and we, we had the press conference and the new mayor was there and the police chief, who I happen to like, was there and you had a couple aldermen from the area and they were saying, okay, well, we this is what we're going to do. We're going to crack down on curfews. You know, we, we've got these curfews that are out there and, and kids aren't supposed to be out after curfew and we're going to start finding the kids and we're going to start finding the parents. And, and what were the numbers? Maybe that's happened like eight or nine times. It was just all it was was talk. Nothing more than talk. That's all it was, and it was never intended to accomplish, you know, anything. And as a result of this, you get these people that are, you know, emboldened by by doing this. And I just, I mean, it's not just the crime itself. I guess what caught my story, what caught my attention about this story is it's not just the underlying crime. Okay, the stolen car, the 14, the gun, you know, the running from the cops. But it's that one of the kids has the audacity to say to the cops, Oh, I, you know, we almost smoked you guys. You know, it's like, it's, it's a game. This is viewed like as a game. It's, you know, you talk about Grand Theft Auto, the video game. Well, this is playing out on a nightly basis. And you got 14-year-olds on the street. And I do think it's fair to say, you know, what kind of parents let their kids or are so unconscious or clueless or unaware that their kids are in this situation? Jeff, here's an idea. Mandatory community service during their entire holiday break and a visit to a family of someone who died from a reckless driver. Well, okay, holiday break assumes that any of these 14-year-old kids are going to school in the first place or care about school in the first place. Jeff, I think you arrest the parents. It's time that the parents be held responsible for their out-of-control kids. Um, Yeah, Jeff, these kids are dependents on someone's tax filing. That adult needs to be held accountable. 
Um, well, that. Jeff, I think that I don't agree with blaming the parents. These children won't abide the rules. They don't know what they're going to do. The kids are sneaking out of the house without the parents knowing. And I don't think so. I, I don't I, I don't I don't believe that. Now, do the I just don't believe that when you see the vast majority of these kids that are out on the street at two or three o'clock in the morning, they have, quote unquote, snuck out of the house without the parents knowing. Now, the parents might not specifically know where they are, but I think a lot of that is because the parents don't care where they are. The parents are just dealing with their, their own life and they are letting the kids run wild on the streets. Let's talk to uh, Bob in Greenfield. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Uh, I, I look at this like our system for dealing with juveniles is antiquated. We're just totally out of touch with what needs to be done. And these kids, I mean, this isn't like they're trying to profit from this, this stealing this car. They're doing this for a joyride, just for thrills. And I think society has to do something. They have to figure out where they want to warehouse these kids and perhaps say, you're in here for the next two years for doing this. If you cooperate, if you go through our, our little boot camp here, do what we want to uh, do basic uh, mm-hmm. educational uh, exercise, because, I mean, these kids obviously aren't, you know, going anywhere in school if they're doing this. You know, then we'll let you out after eight months or six months. But if you refuse to cooperate, if you don't want to do the boot camp stuff, if you don't want to do the educational programs, to try to make you a uh, some kind of a valued citizen to society, you're in here for a long, a long time. Because obviously, these crimes are so heinous. I mean, you got 14 year olds driving; that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you've got 14 year olds out doing whatever they want. I mean, this yeah. is just like kind of a gateway. These are gateway oh, yeah. crimes to big crimes. Well, well and let me stop you there. I don't disagree. It's a gateway crime, but I would argue. Driving high rate of speed in a stolen car, you know, with a gun in the car at the age of 14, I would argue that in and of itself is a pretty big, you know, I don't know what that gateway is going to lead to. It What's is. it next? You know, carjacking or whatever. Yeah, that's a pretty serious crime. Murder. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. is. Right. I know. Thanks. For, I, see, I'm, I'm with you. I, I just think, I think, thanks, Bob, there, there needs to be a degree of accountability that's there. And, and we've just, we've never done that. We, we're just and we're reluctant to do it because we view, oh, the, these these kids are children. Oh, they're just poor children. Well, well, yeah, they're children, but they're also committing incredibly bad crimes. And, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to wait till that 14 year old that's carrying the gun, driving the stolen car at set of three o'clock in the morning? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And he guns down a pedestrian. I mean, do we do we want to wait for that? Because once that happens, somebody's dead, and somebody's then going to prison for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Maybe, just maybe, we intervene now, and you, you can maybe deter a little bit of that. Now, look, I'm not naive. I, I understand that, that you're not going to be able to solve all those problems, but at least if you get these punks off the street now for a while— they're not going to be in a position to steal other cars, run from the cops, and maybe hurt somebody else. So that's value number one. And number two, maybe some of them will find that, hey, they don't like being removed from the, the family structure. They don't like being removed from their neighborhood. They don't like being separated from some of their no-good friends. And, and maybe they just decide, okay, this is not what life is all about for me. Maybe you can get to some of them. Just maybe. When we come back, we've got some of the preliminary results from the Marquette University Law School poll, their last poll before next Tuesday's election. Stick around. 
All right. The Marquette University Law School poll, the final, their final poll before next Tuesday's election has just dropped. And the numbers candidly seem to me to be in line with where I think the race is. In the race for U.S. Senate, in the poll, 50 percent of likely voters in Wisconsin support Ron Johnson, 48 percent support Mandela Barnes. Um, in the last poll, it was 52-46, but that's, it's, that, that's, the race is within the margin of error. I think that's probably accurate as to where it stands. If you look at a number of the other polls, almost all the polls show Johnson leading between two and five points. So I, I think that that two-point spread among likely voters, that, that sounds, that sounds right to me. Um, Johnson leading, but still, I guess, the possibility that this could um, change. Among registered voters, the spread is about the same. Johnson 48, Barnes 45. But Johnson with a a lead over Barnes. And I, I believe, I, I think that's kind of going to be where it ends up. If you want me to make a prediction about this, I think, I think Johnson's going to win by four. I think that's what the numbers are. But if it was two, would I be surprised? If it was three, would I be surprised? If it was five, would I be surprised? No. So Ron Johnson ahead, but within the margin of error. The governor's race and all the polls, there are just a large number of polls that are out there. And without exception, the, the polls show this race to be a toss-up. Um, the, the the most recent series of polls I've seen have Michaels ahead by like one point or two points, but all, all within the margin of error. The Marquette University Law School poll finds that among likely voters, 48% of likely voters in Wisconsin support Tony Evers, 48% of likely voters support Republican challenger Tim Michaels. In early October, it was 47-46 with Evers in the lead, but statistically, that, that's no different. So they, they say it's just flat out, out a toss-up. They say among registered voters, which are different than likely voters, among registered voters, that is a larger group, Michaels 45%, Evers 44%. So that's that's pretty much it. Um, they, they find that, you know, people are entrenched among Republican voters. Re- Michaels is supported by 97% of Republicans, Evers by 95% of Democrats, Johnson by 97% of Republicans, Barnes by 98% of Democrats. So, I mean, people are, are pretty much dug in, and that tells me, again, it's which side is going to do a better job of getting their voters enthused and getting their voters out to the polls. There t- typically is a, a couple point spread. Normally, Republicans tend to underperform in some of these polls because I think it's pretty well documented. Republican voters are less likely to want to participate in this. But the bottom line is, I I think these numbers, if they were anything other than this, I I might be raising my eyebrows. But they have Johnson ahead, but just slightly ahead. And they have the governor's race, a complete and total toss up. Um, That tells you how important it is to get out and vote next Tuesday or, you know, vote before then if it's possible. Now, you do have to take this all with a grain of salt. I mentioned earlier, today is the anniversary, and I I just had one of those brain freezes. I said it was 1945. It was actually 1948. November 2nd, 1948. That was the, the presidential election between Thomas Dewey and Harry Truman, and Truman was running for election. He had become the president 
early on in his first term as vice president after FDR had passed away. And, you know, there, a lot of people thought he, there was no way that he was going to win. The headline in the Chicago Tribune was Dewey beats Truman. And that just didn't happen. And if you ever, if you ever get a chance to go to Key West, and I encourage you, Key West is one of my, my happy places. You, you got to visit the, the Truman, they call it the Truman Annex. It's the, it's the place where Harry Truman used to vacation a lot while he was the president, and they have the they have the house. It's preserved, and it's it's kind of cool. But they they have all sorts of things that you can see, including that headline: "Dewey defeats Truman," and the big pictures of that. So you always have to take polls with a grain of salt. And I, I think, especially over the last several years, I, most responsible pollsters would recognize that they've had some problems, particularly measuring Republican turnout, because Republicans are, for whatever reasons, a lot less likely to cooperate with pollsters than Democrats. So that that's all, it makes it harder to do the polls, and it makes it harder to come out with reliable numbers. And it's why, you know, historically, you see polls have tended to underrepresent the degree of Republican support because lots of Republicans, like I say, just don't want to cooperate. These there have been in the last 24 hours three polls on the Wisconsin governor's race and the Wisconsin Senate race, and and candidly, my my sense as a pundit here is that the, these polls are are sort of in the ballpark. Um, you just had the Marquette University Law School poll that dropped in the Senate race. It has Ron Johnson 50, Mandela Barnes 48. That would be Johnson up by two. Yesterday, the Fox News poll dropped. That had Johnson 48, Barnes 46, Johnson by two. And then the third poll that came out, the Hill-Emerson poll, that had Johnson 51, Barnes 46, Johnson up by five. I, I think that's where the range is. I think Johnson is leading the race. I think, I mean, I've already said, I think he's going to win by, you know, around three or four points. I think that's where the margin is ultimately going to be. And that would certainly be reflective of where these polls are. But again, part of it depends on turnout and the number of people vote. The Wisconsin governor's race, though, is absolutely fascinating. The um, Marquette poll has it in a dead heat. Michael's 48, Evers 48. The Fox News poll, that dropped yesterday has Michaels 48, Evers 47. Michaels up by one. And the uh, Hill Emerson poll, this is the one that had Johnson up by five, has uh, Michaels 49, Evers 48. So all that one poll has it tied, two have Michaels up by one point. That's all within the, the margin of error. In other words, it, it, it could go either way. I think that's also kind of reflective on, on where stuff is now. I think the momentum in the governor's campaign is within with Tim Michaels to the extent that you've seen polls earlier in the year. They had they, they had Evers ahead by a couple points. It's always been close, and now it seems like Michaels is ahead by a couple points. If If Johnson wins— like I think he's going to by you know three four points. I, it's difficult. One of our texters made this point that it's it's difficult to see too many people who are going to ticket split. By that I mean if you're going to vote for Ron Johnson, it's tough for me to see you voting for Tony Evers. And, and similarly, if you're going to vote for Tony Evers, I, I don't see you voting for for Ron Johnson. So it would seem to me that if Again, Ron Johnson is able to hold on to win by two, three, four, five points, something in that. If he's able to do that, I, I would think that, you know, you would have enough people who voted for Johnson who would also vote for Tim Michaels, that that, that would give Michaels an advantage. That's just kind of the way I, I look at this. And you did see that kind of play out in 2016 
where you had, I mean, one of the first re- indications I had that Donald Trump was going to win Wisconsin was, you know, Ron Johnson was throughout the night was it was amassing you know he was leading by 80 90,000 votes trump was leading like by 20 or 30,000 again i just didn't see the ticket splitters some people might some people might drop off and, and not vote i'm going to vote for senate but i'm not going to vote for governor but generally speaking if you're there you're voting for for both and especially given this poll that's now showing that republicans and democrats are pretty much locked in you know 97% of democrats say they're going to vote for evers 90 you know 7% of republicans say they're going to vote for michaels all that sort of thing so it, it's going to be, and it could be a long election night if these numbers hold up. I, I think, again, all these poll numbers are where I kind of believe the race is. And I think it's where if you talk to the people who are doing the internal polls, the ones where you've really got to be right, I think that that's what they're saying is that Johnson's ahead, close race. I guess something could turn around, but Johnson is ahead and in all likelihood is going to win. And the governor's race, just pretty much of a, of a pick em. And we will be around to discuss it over the next couple of days. But that's where the polls are. Um, dead even, Marquette says it's dead even between Michaels and Evers and Johnson with a slight lead. And my guess is that sounds about right. Depending on your perspective, here's a funny, sad, interesting observation from the Marquette University Law School poll. They ask, they, they ask people, OK, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of the, the candidates? All right. This may be. It might be the first time that I have seen this in this this fashion. So they say, okay, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Tony Evers? Among registered voters, 44% say they view Evers favorably. 36% view him unfavorably. So he, he's underwater by a couple points. Then they go to Mike about Michaels. Do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Tim Michaels? Among registered voters, 39% favorable. 39% unfavorable. So that's that that's that's even but again within the the margin of error. Then do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Ron Johnson among registered voters? 43% favorable, 46% unfavorable. So he's underwater. Then do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Mandela Barnes among registered voters? 40% favorable, 44% unfavorable for for all of the candidates. None of them According to this poll among registered voters, none of them have more people that view them favorably than unfavorably. The best is Tim Michaels, who um, there's, I guess, a larger percentage of people who don't have an opinion about him. Thirty nine, thirty nine. It's just it's it's neutral. But, you know, Evers underwater by two. Uh, Johnson underwater by three. Barnes underwater by four. I, I'm, I'm sure there are occasions that this has happened before. But again, the, the the notion that you know we're all the candidates essentially like it's it's a pox on their house. There, there's not even a majority of people that agree that okay, this is where you know that we think that we have a positive view of them. So it, it really does seem like it maybe at least some people are voting for what they perceive to be the lesser of two evils. All right, I made an observation um, right before the break, and I want to I want to open up the phone lines to get your reaction because I continue to think I'm correct, but I, I I'm said that I don't think there's that many ticket splitters. That's one of, as I look at this election, I think if Ron Johnson wins by three, four, five points, I think that that could very well be the difference in the governor's race because I don't believe that there's that many people who are going to vote for Ron Johnson 
and then also turn around and vote for Tony Evers. Now, obviously, there's some people out there that will do that, but I don't think that's that's kind of the significant number. There will be, I think, you know, obviously maybe there's some some drop-off in some people who don't vote. So I, I said that, and I, I, I two texts, so I'm not being swamped with text on this particular issue, but one of our texters said, well, no, here's the deal. Um, I, I, I voted— um, I voted for Ron Johnson, and I sat out. I decided not to vote in in the governor's race. Didn't want to vote for either one of them. Another texter says, I think there might be more ticket splitters than you realize. I am one who is voting for Ron Johnson, and I'm voting for Tony Evers. Um, so I, I don't—I'm having—I appreciate that there might be some people out there that do that. I just don't see that in a large— in a large number, there might be some people who, again, just don't, don't vote. Hey, I'm going to vote for Tony Evers, but I can't vote for Mandela Barnes, so I'm not going to also vote for Ron Johnson. So I'll sit out the Senate race and maybe the flip side of that. But I got to believe the vast majority, the vast, 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 vast majority, 98 percent of the people who are going to vote for Tony Evers are going to vote for Mandela Barnes. And 98 percent of the people who are going to vote for Ron Johnson are going to vote for Tim Michaels. But I'm willing to tee this up, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Do you think that there's really going to be a lot of ticket splitting in, in, in the election? That is, you know, voting for the Republican candidate for Senate and the Democratic candidate for governor or, or vice versa. I just I don't think that that is going to be the case, which is one of the reasons why I believe that if Johnson is able to run up a decent margin on Mandela Barnes, um, whatever a decent margin might be, that he just that helps. That helps Michaels. 855-616-1620. That's the uh, WTMJ talk and text line we discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I Again, maybe time will tell, but I just don't. I do not think that there is going to be in the election on Tuesday. I don't think there's going to be an appreciable number of people who split their ticket, which is one of the reasons why I think if one of the races like the U.S. Senate race is is a broader. If Johnson win, Ron Johnson, for example, wins by four or five points, something that I don't think is out of the question, I, I think that helps lift Tim Michaels because I just I'm having trouble seeing that there are going to be too many people who are going to, for example, vote for Ron Johnson and then turn around and vote for Tony Evers. And and I would argue the flip side as well. Marty in Racine. Marty, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How Hi, are you? I'm good. What do you think? I'm a split ticket voter. I know who I want to vote for, you know, for Senate, but I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils for the governor race. He, Michaels is an empty suit, and then during the debate, Evers looked like he was asleep. Okay. So you're going to vote for. So, like about, so your plan is you're going to vote for the Republican like in the about, Senate, and you're going to vote for. You're going to split your ticket. That's what you're thinking of doing. No, I'm voting for the Democrat in the Senate. Okay, and the Republican and the governor. Okay, all right. Thank. Well, that's. I mean, I, again, that's. I, I'm sure there is some of that, that that's out there, but I, I think that's going to be that's going to be a small percentage of the voters. And if you wonder why you still hear the ads and stuff like this, it's because 
They, they want both sides want to make sure they get anybody who's thinking or leaning their way. They want to make sure they get them out to vote. Jeff, my wife didn't split her ticket, nor did my daughter. I might be an anomaly, but I think I'm going to do that. Jeff, I'm planning on voting for Johnson and Evers. Um, okay, Johnson, uh, Jeff, I will be voting for Evers. I will not be voting in the U.S. Senate. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, I couldn't vote for any of the four major candidates. Left Governor Blank wrote in Paul Ryan for Senate. Well, okay, whenever I hear stuff like that, I, I it's— it's fine. People get to vote for how they want to vote, but at the same time, then why bother? I mean, if you if you're if you're not going to make a decision in in a race, you're, you're pretty much throwing your vote away. And if you're going to write in Paul Ryan, and I like Paul Ryan, okay, that's that's just flat out wasting your vote, Jeff. I'm probably going to be one of those people who split my ticket. I think that there might be more than you think there are. Well, I guess we'll know. Um, let's see, Jeff, it's not the ticket splitting. I think you're missing the fact that some people are mad about Michaels beating Rebecca Clayfish. I know a few people voting for Johnson, but they won't be voting for governor. Well, it might be a few people, but I'm still thinking that's the unicorn. Jeff, I'm a Republican. I've heard from many of my female Republican friends that they intend to support Johnson, but, um, not Michaels. Okay, so you've um, got that. Jeff, I'm concerned about the independent candidate who pulled out of the race and backed Tim Michaels. Uh, She's still on the ballot. She could take some precious votes from Michaels since the race is so tight. Yeah, that's, um, I guess her name is escaping me. I apologize. But yeah, she was going to be on the ballot, even though she's dropped out of the race and has endorsed Michaels. And, you know, in a race... It could be decided by five or 10,000 votes. Um, that could be it. Jeff, I'm with you on ticket splitting. I voted for all the Republicans in the race. Jeff, I'm voting for Ron Johnson. I am undecided for governor. Let's talk to Todd in Milwaukee. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Hi, Todd. Um, I'm going to vote for Johnson and considering voting for Evers, still, okay. <laughs> still trying to make up my mind, but... Um, I guess there's a, there's a number of reasons. Um, I mean, I know Johnson has some ties to Trump, but the Trump endorsement, I think I see as a negative. Um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like him as part of the Republican party. And then, so his endorsement is actually a negative for me. That's one reason I'm kind of soured on, on Michaels. Um, in addition to that, and with the Republican legislature here in the state, I, I mean, Evers powers are limited, of course. Um, and then of course with it, with uh, the U S Senate, being so close, hmm. it's, it's more important that we get a Republican representative there. Hmm. Um, so I mean, you, you put all that together, and it's like, got to keep Johnson in office to to keep the you know the Senate the way I want it. Um, but but like I said, that that Trump thing hmm. makes me. So when are you going to decide for Michael? When do you think you're going to decide? <laughs> When well, you're in the booth, got a few more days. All right, fair. No, no, I, I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, it's okay. All right, thanks. Thanks for calling. I, I and look, I, I appreciate that there are some undecided voters out there. I, I can't believe that there's really too many people who are undecided who end up going out to vote. But you know, you've got a couple of days to decide this. And I think the one thing that is very clear is I think both races, well, races in Wisconsin are almost always close. Um, they're 
historically in polls that mis- it underrepresents Republican support. It's interesting, in the Marquette Law Poll, they ask people, you know, what their number one issue is. And for Democrats, they say it's abortion. For Republicans, they say it's um, inflation and crime. And for independents, they say it's inflation and crime, which if that would play out, it would tend to, again, benefit, you would think, the Republicans um, as opposed to like the, the, the abortion as, as the single issue. But, you know, who knows? This is going to be a close race, and it's why it's going to be interesting to see how this all happens, and it's going to be interesting to see which party is able to do a better job of getting their voters out to vote, whether it's absentee ballots or whether it's early in-person voting or whether it's showing up at the polls next Tuesday. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Well, some things seem like they're a good idea at the time, and in retrospect, you go, what was that person thinking? And then there's some ideas that, well, that you think, why did anybody think this was ever a good idea? Here is the story. Um, Saturday night, Halloween Big parties in Madison. And if you've ever been to Madison around Halloween, you know that State Street gets taken over by students and former students and just people looking to party. And there's huge parties and people dress up in all sorts of different outfits. And it's Halloween. Now, Halloween always used to be about, hey, this is the night to let your freak flag fly. And, you know, people, some people would have like really simple tame costumes and other people would dress up in costumes that were well, I mean, avant-garde or pushing the edge or, or offensive, but that was the idea. You could do that at Halloween. Well, well, things have, have definitely changed. So here's the story. Um, there's a guy on Saturday night who's walking up and down State Street, and he's dressed as Adolf Hitler. And if you've seen the pictures of this, he's, he's like the spitting image of Adolf Hitler. This, this is, it's not like a caricature of Adolf Hitler. It's, I mean, he looks like Hitler. <laughs> he's, you know, he's got the mustache and he's got the hair style like that. And he's where he, he looks like Adolf Hitler and he's walking up and down the street and he's interacting with people and he's going into the bars and things like that. Well, what happens is number of people um, become freaked out by this and they're offended and they're troubled by this and they call they call the police and they report this guy to to the police and they say there's this guy that's dressed up like like Adolf Hitler that's out there and and we want you to come out and we want you to do something well so this puts the police in a bind because the police are of kind of the opinion saying well look we we understand that this is in like really really bad taste but he's not doing anything. You know, we understand that this is offensive. Well, I mean, here's what they say officially. The Madison Police Department is aware of an individual who was in the downtown area dressed as Adolf Hitler on Saturday evening. Numerous reports of this subject have come to the MTD on Sat Madison Police Department on Saturday night, and this individual has received significant attention on social media. While this display of a costume was certainly offensive and reprehensible, this alone does not rise to a criminal act. Uh, Madison Police Department took a variety of reports, listening to and empathizing with the individuals that called reporting their concern over this individual's attire. Um, However, the individual did not do anything which would rise to the level of a crime. Um, In response, 
to these reports, the Madison police were quickly able to identify this individual, and they made contact with him on Sunday. The individual was interviewed about his conduct and informed of the issue that he caused in our community. The individual lives in the Madison area, but not in the city of Madison. It has also been confirmed that this person is not a student at the University of Madison. During the course of the investigation, it was also learned that the individual has a cognitive impairment due to a past traumatic brain injury. So you, you have he's an adult, um, cognitive impairment, not a student, not creating. It's not like he was, you know, causing a disturbance in that he was you know, like provoking a fight or something. He was he was just dressed as, for whatever reason, he was dressed as Adolf Hitler. Well, so Madison police say there's just, like there's nothing we can do about this because there wasn't a crime committed. Well, here's the the follow up. It turns out that the guy who was dressed up as Adolf Hitler has for the last 10 years worked with the children's the Madison Children's Museum. So he's worked with the Madison Children's Museum. The Madison Children's Museum issued a statement yesterday saying that we have determined that his continued employment would create an environment at odds with our values and unwelcoming to visitors and staff. As a result, he has now been fired from his position. They said the man's costume was completely unacceptable and runs counter to everything the museum believes. We stand against anti-Semitism and all forms of bigotry and discrimination. His work with the museum over the past 10 years has been closely supervised, coached, and supported. It is our understanding that he believed the costume to be mocking Hitler. But nevertheless, they have fired him. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. All right, did the Children's Museum do the right thing? Now, again, this at this point in time, I don't want to talk about whether they had a legal basis for, for firing him or not. I don't know if there'll be a, a lawsuit that, that's filed in connection with this. But, but here you have a guy who's got a cognitive, develop, cognitive problems as a result of a traumatic brain injury. He is an adult. He just shows up in public dressed as Adolf Hitler on Halloween night. Is that, should that have been enough to cost him his job? Everybody, I think, or at least I hope, everybody would agree that the costume was incredibly poor taste and very, very poor judgment to, to dress as Hitler. But... Should it have cost him his job? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. If you can't tell, I'm, I'm having trouble with the decision to fire this guy. So if you're, if you're just tuning in, here, here's the story. This is an adult who has worked for the Madison Children's Museum for, for the last 10 years with, without problems. He um, Apparently, they, they talk about how he has had a traumatic brain injury, so he has cognitive problems. On Saturday night, he goes out in public dressed as Adolf Hitler, and he's walking up and down State Street. He doesn't, he doesn't cause problems. He doesn't get into fights. He's not disturbing the peace. It's just people see the guy that's dressed up as Adolf Hitler, and they become uncomfortable. They call the cops. The cops come out. The cops say, well, he, did he do anything to No, he didn't do anything. He was just dressed as Adolf Hitler, and we think that that's inappropriate and bad taste. And they say, well, yeah, it is inappropriate. And it's in bad taste. Uh, they find out who the guy is, and it turns out he, this adult who works for the Madison Children's um, Museum, the Children's Museum finds out about it, and they fire him. 
Um, 855-616-1620. Is this... And, and maybe they have a right to do it, I, I guess. That's the, I mean, maybe they, maybe they have a right to do it, but he didn't commit a crime. He didn't do anything while he was on, on public time. I mean, it's, it's not like he showed up to work dressed as Adolf Hitler. This is, it's Saturday night in Madison. He has cognitive issues. He chooses a costume which is reprehensible. No, no question like that. But should that in and of itself cost you your your job if if he had committed a crime i get it if he had showed up at work i get it if he had been at work espousing nazi principles i i understand all that but this is it was just a very very poor choice in costume he made should that cost him a job 855-616-1620 jeff the costume was in very horrible taste but he shouldn't lose his job because of it he did nothing illegal i mean i guarantee you morons will be out this year dressed as daryl brooks um you know no different than i remember years ago you had people that were dressed as the unabomber when i was younger morons will be morons but again i don't think he should be I don't think he should have lost his his job for this. Jeff, what would you do if he went out in blackface? Well, that's another that's a very good question. I mean, if he showed up if he showed up in out in in blackface, would it cost him his his job? And again, I don't know what he did with the museum, but I don't think he was a he wasn't a a face of the museum. By that I mean, I don't think he was like one of the spokespeople or something. He was somebody who I think, you know, worked you know, somewhere within the museum. So it wasn't like he had a position, say, like mine. It wasn't where, you know, he was a signature voice on one of the largest radio stations in the state. And so, you you know, people, when you're more of a public figure, I, I think there's, I mean, maybe more of a, I mean, you have to be held more to, more accountable. And again, I don't don't anybody text me and say, "Oh, you're just defending this guy dressed as Hitler." No, I mean, it was an incredibly stupid thing to do. The question becomes, how far ranging are the consequences for this incredibly stupid thing? Let's start with John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi, John. Yeah, Hi, you know. Uh, people dress up like, 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 like Dahmer, mm-hmm. you know, on Halloween and different people. And I don't think the guy should have been fired for that, but I don't think he should go around every day like that. But <laughs> I mean, Hey, you know, yeah, no. Well, I, I, John, I'm with you on that. I, I, I would hope, like, if, if he showed up as work dressed as Hitler, I, I think I'd be, you know, I'd be sending him packing. No, thanks. Well, see, that that's the issue. I mean, where where do you draw the line? So, if if you had somebody who was dressed up as Daryl Brooks, you know, walking up and down the streets. If you had somebody who was dressed up as Dahmer, matter of fact, that's, we were talking about, that's the, that's the, because of the, the thing on Netflix, this is, this was one of the big Halloween things. You had a number of bars who already said, you know, we're not going to let people in if they're dressed like Jeffrey Dahmer. But I mean, that's, that, that, and, and bars have the rights to do that. I guess the question becomes, if somebody does decide, hey, it's Halloween, I'm going to go out, I'm going to dress like Daryl Brooks, does that, does that cost them or should it cost them um, his job? Jeff, it's an at-will employee, so he can be fired for any reason. Um, well, yeah, I, I understand, again, he could be fired for any reason. And then Texter goes on to say, well, you know, maybe maybe sitting down and having a conversation with him would have been a better thing to do. And I guess that's it, because apparently the—I the, mean, the—, the the museum says that when they talked to the guy, the guy thought, well, I wasn't doing this as, as a tribute. I was doing this as to kind of like mock Hitler. 
Um, and again, I mean, nobody saw it like that. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to uh, Lucy in Milwaukee. Lucy, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, I, I kind of smell a rat here because the story that you told emphasizes that the man is brain damaged. Yep. I think somebody put him up to this. Um, and because of his disability, I guess if I were the employer and he wasn't the public face of the museum, right. I would have cut him some slack. Somebody can playing completely with a full deck. If the employer wants to fire him at Joe's auto shop, so what? Um, but, but this story, this is kind of mm-hmm. something, something doesn't smell right here. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I, I think Lucy, thanks for the call. I, I think I'm, I, I, I don't, I would have taken him aside. And, and I would have tried to decide, okay, first of all, is this guy really a Nazi sympathizer who, you know, who emulates and adores Adolf Hitler? Okay, that, if, if that's, that's it, well, that, that's, then you're in kind of a different classification. If this is a cognitively disabled adult who just, you know, thinks this is going to be clever, or like you say, Lucy, somebody put him up to it, and he's wandering down State Street, but he's not otherwise causing a problem, yeah, I think this is one where I would have— thought it would be more appropriate to exercise some discretion and simply sit him down and talk to him and say, well, they're not releasing his name because he hasn't been charged with a crime. Well, Frank, you know, you, you realize this made a lot of people upset. And, and I know that that wasn't your intent to do that, but that was the effect of this. And, you know, we'd, we'd hope in the future that you'd be, you know, more sensitive because this is Adolf Hitler and this is the, the Holocaust and, you know, this was a mass murder. And, and maybe your point was that you wanted to do this in, as a mocking of him, but that's not the way a lot of people, like, interpreted it. And then then you just kind of go on, then you kind of go on from there. Uh, one of our texters says, what's the big deal about the um, about the costume? Well, it's – look, I, I, I'm not going to go down that route. It's clearly an inappropriate and an offensive con- uh, costume. That is one of the problems, though, with, with Halloween because there was a point in time where it used to be Halloween was that night that you could go out and you could push the bounds of good taste in, in these things. Now, there's always, there's always lines of that. Jeff, I've had enough of the cancel culture. What he did was wrong, but I don't think he should have lost his job. Maybe a suspension or something, but not his job. This cancel culture stuff needs to end. Jeff, well, what about free speech? Well, okay, what you have to understand is the First Amendment says that government can't do anything to restrict your right to free speech. It doesn't say that an employer can't. I mean, you can you can go out dressed as Adolf Hitler, but, you know, that doesn't mean that there might not be consequences from your employer. I'm just in a situation where, um, you know, I, I just, I think this, I think this is a knee-jerk reaction because his costume appropriately generated so much reaction and so much heat. But once you, you know, kind of go beyond the scenes, I, I don't get the idea that this guy had any sort of malicious intent. Intent, Jeff, as a sister of someone with cognitive disabilities, where was the adult maybe helping this person make choices? The place of employment could have maybe worked with him, told him what he did wrong— guide him versus firing him. Well, I think there's, you know, an, an element, there is an element to this. Um, the, and then people are suggesting some of the various other costumes. Yeah, there, there's there's all sorts of things. Jeff, has anything in his job performance changed? And the answer would be no. What he did on his private time should not be costing him his job. 
I understand this might have been an extreme bad taste, but I don't believe it was related to his job. Well, and again, his job, he, he worked, and I'm, I'm sure he worked in a sort of back-channel capacity for the Children's Museum. Again, it's, I, I think there can be different standards for people who are very, very visible. I, I'll use the examples myself. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's probably, it's a different standard for somebody who's been a signature voice on the largest radio station in the state for, you know, 25 years now. If I go out and I show up dressed as Hitler, and that's, that reflects on the station, whereas if you have, you know, some part-time employee who, you know, nobody even knows works for the station that goes out and does something that's determined to be in bad taste, you treat that differently, or at least I think you'd be justified in treating it differently. In any event, that that's the story behind this, and it, it was it was just a, a, a moment of incredible bad judgment. Now the guy is paying the consequence for it. I'm just not sure the punishment equals the crime. And again, this is not endorsing going out in Hitler in Hitler outfits. Incredibly bad taste. But under the circumstances, maybe talking to him and explaining what he did wrong as opposed to simply firing him because you're afraid that there's going to be some bad publicity if you don't, maybe that would have been the more appropriate way to handle the situation. So very glad to have you with us. I meant to ask my colleague, Steve Scafidi, who was the former mayor of Oak Creek, you know that, about this. Here, Police are investigating a brawl that broke out at the Marcus South Shore Cinema in Oak Creek late November 1st. This would have been last night. Um, woman says she gets to the theater just after 10 p.m. with her friend. Boy, who goes to movies at 10 o'clock at night on a on a Tuesday night? The two got their tickets, popcorn, and were walking to their theater at the far end of the hallway. As we got to like a quarter of the way down, people started running out and screaming that there was a fight. Lots of children being dragged out by their families. Everyone looked terrified. I thought there could have been a gun with how scared everyone was, but there wasn't. Some online posts reported a knife was involved. Police have not confirmed that. I hear somebody talking about blood at one point, but I didn't know if anybody got stabbed. Uh, Oak Creek Police Department uh, not issuing comments on this right now. So Mike Spaulding, I mean, what, what kind of neighborhood does Scafidi live in? You've got like mini riots going on at the Marcus Theater in Oak Creek. I have no idea. That's the movie theater I go to. You go to that too? Yeah. Ten o'clock on a who goes to a movie at ten o'clock on a Tuesday night? Yeah, certainly not me. Yeah, was, <laughs> but yeah, that's the one we go to. It's really nice. So I don't know what's going Police on. Police arrived within minutes. Officers ran past the woman. She saw someone handcuffed in the hallway, still screaming. Um, let's see. She was able to see the movie with her friend, as only those in the theater where the fight took place were evacuated. I don't know. It's just wild in the streets in Oak Creek. Goodness gracious, I man, you, you expect that some places in the city of Milwaukee. But now, Oak Creek, well, Tuesday night, that is senior night. At, um, that is like Senior's Day where you get the like $5 movie tickets and stuff like that. I know a lot of people that go to go to that. But we've got that. Hey, coming up after, after the news, I, I think it's obvious, but I know you may disagree with me. <laughs> If you think reckless driving is just a problem around southeastern Wisconsin, here's one of the stories that indicates that that's not the case. The headline, car was going 116 miles per hour before fatal hit-and-run crash, Green Bay police say, 15-year-old charged. 
A Green Bay teenager faces charges of first-degree reckless homicide and hit-and-run, causing death in connection with a Sunday night crash that killed a passenger in his second car. The Green Bay girl, 15, is also charged with operating a vehicle, a Toyota Corolla, without the consent of its owner, her mother. So she takes the family car. Um, Police identified the victim as 17-year-old from Milwaukee. The crash occurred about 7.40 p.m. Sunday at Oneida and West Mason Streets on the west side. Green Bay police say the Corolla, this would be the one driven by the 15-year-old who had stolen the car, taken it from her mother, said the Corolla was moving eastbound at a high rate of speed. Now they say 116 miles an hour. Yeah, that's a high rate of speed. Past a red light, so it blows through a red light, when it slams into a northbound vehicle that was in the intersection. All right, so that would be it, it's, it hits it on the side. The Corolla then collided head-on with a third vehicle, police say. Witnesses say the occupants of the Toyota then ran from the scene. The 15-year-old driver suffered a broken arm in the pileup. GoFundMe account has been set up for the family uh, to help the family cover funeral expenses and to help the teen's mother travel from Fort Lauderdale to Wisconsin. But again, it's a, a 15-year-old driving a car, 115 miles an hour, blows through a red light, hits and, and kills a 17-year-old in this case who just happens to be, again, it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Their car is in the intersection when this happens. Now, I don't know why this has become this game that, that kids decide to play. And, oh, this is cool to go out and drive these cars as fast as they can. And now in this case, it's this isn't a situation where a John Chisholm can simply slap him on the wrist. Okay, somebody is dead. This 15-year-old is going to be going to prison, and it's going to be going to prison for probably 10 or 15 years. And they should be in prison for 10 or 15 years, but just I don't know if it would have stopped her from taking that car that night, but maybe, just maybe, if we start cracking down on people every time they steal cars and drive recklessly, maybe the word will get out that, you know, we're, we're going to hold you accountable before you get the chance to do this and kill somebody. Just saying. Okay, in uh, one of the earlier segments today, I was talking about voting, and and um, the I read a couple texts from people who said, well, I'm going to... I'm just I'm going to write in a name. I, I'm going to I'm not going to vote for governor, and I'm going to write in Paul Ryan for senator or something like that. And, and my comment on the air and in response to the person who tweeted that is, you're, you're wasting your vote. And the, the person responded, said, No, I'm not wasting my vote. I'm I'm making a statement. And my response was, No, you're not making a statement. You're you're wasting your vote. And I want to discuss that with you. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ Talk and Text Line. Now, hear me out on this. It is a free country. You can vote for whomever you choose, or you can choose not to vote. Right? That's, that, that's all well, well and good. You, you can make that choice. But the reality is, in our elections, for example, in the election coming up on, on Tuesday for governor, it, it is a binary choice. It is the option is Tony Evers or the option is Tim Michaels. Now that's not to say that you can't write. You can write in my name. You can write in Donald Duck. You please don't write in my name. You can write in my name. You can write in Donald Duck. You can write in Paul Ryan. You can write in whoever you want. But but that vote, that write-in vote, isn't going to make any difference. It's not going to do anything to help 
make the selection between, the, in this case, it's the Republican candidate and the Democrat candidate. That is just the reality. You are wasting your vote. Now, you have a right to waste your vote, but my question would be, why would you bother to, to do that? Isn't voting too important? Now, somebody would say, well, I'm making a statement. I am, I am displaying my displeasure with the choice offered me by Tim Michaels and Tony Evers in the example I'm giving. And my response is, nobody cares. I mean, that's, it, it's, it, nobody cares. At the end of the day, whether it's Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon, whenever they have the, the results, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, okay, we had 1.1 million people who voted for Tim Michaels, and we had 1,900,000 that voted for for, for Tony Evers, and the difference is ten or 15,000 votes, and Tim Michaels wins. That, that, that's, or, or it could go the other way. Nobody's going to look and say, hey, you know, there's a guy in Glendale, Wisconsin, who decided to make a statement and vote for Jeff Wagner. It, they, don't, they don't care. It, it's just, it's, it, you might as well have not voted. So you're not making a statement other than the statement says, I'm throwing away my vote. Now, you have a right to do that. Don't get me wrong. But I just, I flat out don't understand. Now, there might be some races where you've got a third-party candidate or something, an independent candidate who really, you know, can win and it can really make a difference. But just in a situation where there's not something like that, just to go and, for example, in the situation that the person who texted me said, just to vote for Paul Ryan, okay, writing Paul Ryan's name in, it doesn't make any sort of statement at all other than you're abdicating your vote, you're abdicating your right to choose who the next governor realistically could be. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. And I know we argue about this every election season, but it's just— If you want to make a conscious decision that you don't want to participate in the governor's race or the Senate race or the attorney general race or or whatever, that's fine. That's a conscious decision that you are making. You're not participating. But when you do that, understand you're not making a statement at all. You're just saying, okay, I don't choose to participate. And I guess I don't understand why you would waste your vote in that fashion. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, let's discuss. Is is it not a wasted vote? And if not, why not? We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. This segment isn't about whether if you go in a polling place and you want to write in a candidate or, you know, Donald Duck or whatever. Nobody's going to stop you from doing that. I'm just saying it it is a wasted vote. And somebody's saying, no, I'm making a statement. And nobody cares. You're you're not making a statement. Nobody cares about that. That ballot, it doesn't get counted. It gets thrown out, whatever it is. It, it It doesn't add to, you know, who's going to win that night. So, yes, you are throwing away your vote. And as far as a statement, trust me, nobody goes back and says, oh, gee, in that last election, there were out of Two million votes cast. There were 195 votes that were right in candidates for this, that, or the other person. Oh, we need to change our policies to account for that. No, it's just it's just people say, oh, there are a bunch of dummies that just decided to just kind of throw away their vote. People are going to concentrate on the people who do choose to vote. Jeff, writing in an unregistered vote is not only a wasted vote, it also makes the election worker's job harder for no good reason. We have to filter through every ballot to find the write-in. Document it according to the Election Commission rules all by 
by hand. It can take hours. Please only write in valid candidates, and please don't do it just to make a a statement. <laughs> That's it. Jeff, writing somebody in on a ballot is just a way of saying that you don't care for the candidate the party has to offer. Well, okay, then then don't vote. All right, if if that's it, then then don't you know vote, Jeff. I'm getting tired of voting for the candidate who I don't like less than the other candidate. Um, okay, I I understand that. I know writing in a vote is a waste, or leaving a spot empty simply doesn't do any good. It simply makes voting difficult. Well, I I I appreciate that, and you know that's but that's just kind of the nature of the system. Um, and all I'm saying is if you want to. If, if you want to sit out the election, that, that's okay. But don't think that you're, you're doing something. Don't think that somebody's going to go back and look and say, gee, you know, there were 40 votes for whatever, one of the other candidates. That, that's, it's not a statement. Nobody cares. Let's talk to uh, Greg in Horicon. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, such a great topic. I'm so glad you brought it up. I'll try to make this as quick as I can. But and I hope you bring this topic up uh, the the next five days that you're on the air. Um, Remember, a senator's vote is six years. Uh, Governor's vote is four years. Uh, Representative is two years. So for a minimum of two years, just trying to make a point. Are you willing to suffer the consequences of of that vote? And we know with let's just look at the senator for four years. You know, if, if if you don't like the way we're going for four years, we can do another nothing for four years, or we can get something done for four years. Yeah. Uh, just just uh, again, yeah. Jeff, I hope you bring this back up uh, every day up until the election. It's so important that these silly votes really mean nothing. Thank you for bringing it well, up, sir. Well, thanks for the call, Greg. I appreciate it. And again, look, I, and, and some people say, well, you have the constitutional right to do it. That's not my point. Yes, you have the constitutional I'm, I'm just arguing it is a, it is a waste. And, I mean, for everybody who thinks that you are making some sort of grand statement that everybody cares about, no, nobody cares. They're, they're, not, they're not changing policy. They're not saying, oh, we're, we're going to do this or we're not going to do this or we're going to change our mind on this because, you know, 175 people out of 100,000 ballots decided that they were going to, like, write in some name. No, it's just you, <laughs> what you're saying is I'm— I'm not going to participate, even though I'm going to show up and and vote. Jeff, can't disagree with you more. Voting a third party or writing in has impacted elections in the past. Wallace, Anderson, etc. No and no. Not voting is a wasted vote. I don't vote for lesser candidates if both don't deserve it. And no, I mean, look, there, there may be occasions where you have legitimate third-party candidates who play spoilers. I mean, I'll give you the real example of that, which was in 1992, where you had George Bush, first President Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot. Enough Perot was able to siphon off enough protest votes that I think he was able to deny George Bush the election. So, yeah, in that particular case, effectively by voting for Perot, you, you voted for Clinton. Oh, okay, that's the case. But this, for example, in Wisconsin this year, there's there's not third-party candidates that are running. You know, if you're going to write in somebody, it is. I'm going to write in Paul Ryan's name. I'm going to write in Jeff Wagner's name or, or whatever. It's you. Your vote is going to have no significance at all. It's essentially saying, 
I'm willing to abdicate my choice. And I guess I just, I think voting is so important. I don't understand why you would do that. I, I don't understand why somebody would take the trouble to go out into that voting booth and then do something like that. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, if you really want to make a statement, you know, write a letter to the editor. Uh, go online and post something saying, you know what, we need a third candidate. And if you really feel strongly, you should have somebody in mind that you want to advocate for. You know, writing in some silly thing. And I think a lot of those people that voted for Perot would have rather had Bush in office than Clinton. And they got what they asked for, yeah. unfortunately. Um, yeah. So I, I, I also have a hard time believing that. And I understand there's been, there's been elections where both candidates are, are pretty poor, but you can't find some difference between the two or something yeah. you like better about one or a policy you, you agree with more that you can't choose somebody over the other. That's hard to believe. Yeah, I'm with you, Mike. That, that's, and look, and, and, you know, I've, I've, I've been my entire adult life. I've been hearing this. Oh, I don't like any of the candidates. I don't like this person or that person. Well, there's no perfect candidate. You end up, you end up having to make the, the choices. That's the bottom line of this. And, and, and I understand people think that they're making a, a statement, and I, I know there's some people who vote for the Independent Party candidate or the Libertarian Party candidate all, all the time because they're, they're hoping that that party can make, a, can make a comeback at some point in time. And I guess if that's your, your goal, it hasn't worked out, you know, in the last 50-plus years, but that's not to say it might not happen in the future. But just to go and sit and write in, write in somebody's name who you know is not going to get more than a dozen votes or maybe they're going to get 20 votes or, or whatever is these protest votes. I, I just believe voting is too precious to simply, you know, throw this away. And, you know, that's it. You know, this is, uh, Jeff, thanks for bringing up topics like wasted vote. It's good to bring to light. That's a great community service. Well, I, I just, I, I just, these elections are important. And there's a huge difference. There's going to be a huge difference in Wisconsin if Tony Evers is the governor or if Tim Michaels is the governor. And, you know, if maybe you might not like aspects of either one of them, for example. But if you write in my name or you write in Paul Ryan's name or you write in whoever's name, okay, you you are saying I'm not making that choice. I am not participating in a meaningful fashion in making that decision. And then like our caller Mike was talking about, imagine how you feel five or six months from now when Michaels wins and he does something that you just can't, I can't believe he's doing that. Well, okay, you helped him get elected by not voting for Evers. Or the flip side, Evers gets elected and he does something that you can't stand. He shuts down the state again. And then it's a situation where I can't believe he shut down the state again. Well, maybe if instead of you writing Paul Ryan's name in, you would have written in the you would have voted for uh, Tim Michaels. Maybe that wouldn't have happened. I, I just, I, I want people to think about that. Again, it has nothing to do with the the constitutional right to do what you want when you get in the ballot box and to vote for who you want. I just continue to believe that voting for someone who has no chance to win, who's not even on the ballot, for example, in this write-in fashion, and I'm not talking about, again, you, you, if, if there's a situation where, hey, um, you, have, you have a write-in campaign, and it's a serious write-in campaign. You know, you've got somebody who's the nominee of the Republican Party, and there's a real serious organized candidacy. Jeff Wagner is running as a write-in candidate to try to topple, you know, so-and-so, and it's a serious campaign. That's a different story than just, I don't like this guy, and I don't like that guy, and I'm just going to write in some random 
person. That's a different story. Writing in the random person is, at least in my opinion, it's a waste. You have the right to waste your vote. I just personally don't understand why you would do that. All right, a lot of great stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program, including would you pay for Twitter if you had to? Was abortion the way to go? And John Chisholm history? Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Mike Spaulding, who is dressed in your Bucks regalia today, Fear the Deer. You, you want to know why? Sure. I dumped is, coffee oh, on myself oh, on my gonna, ride I, to work this morning. Okay, I was going to say, is it an interesting story, or is it? No, just you, you poured coffee on yourself. Yeah. Luckily, I had the sweatshirt. I I, you know... <laughs> That is an interesting story because I used to, I learned early on when I was practicing law and I I had to dress like a lawyer and stuff, I I can't tell you how many times that I'd be driving to work and I've got my white shirt and my tie on and suit and I I do that that dribble thing with the Uh, coffee and it would go down and you'd have this big like coffee stain and stuff. So I learned early on that the only way around that was extra shirts. So in my office, I would always... I would always keep like two extra shirts because I knew I and an extra tie that would go with pretty much anything you know I was wearing some some of their basic sort of tie because inevitably I would spill and it, it would also it would always be that day too not when you're just like in the office it would be like okay I got to be in court at nine o'clock in the morning and you know I've got this big old coffee stain yeah I'm very happy we don't have someone like the like the AG the governor is not in studio today or anything like that because yeah. The old, the old You're rocking study. the fear to the earth. Well, actually, I was going to mention during your newscast, this is the NBA, I think, just started doing this in the last year or two. It's not, it's not, never been unusual to play teams back to back, the same team, you know, but what's unusual, and I, I, this is like only, I think, like the second year they've done it, is like the, the Bucks play the Detroit Pistons tonight. They played the, the Pistons on Monday night, but normally it would be they play them in Milwaukee on one night, and then they play them in Detroit like the next night or two days later. Here, the Pistons have been hanging around. They've, it's, it's, it's in Milwaukee for two games in a row. Yeah, it's a weird back-to-back home situation. Yeah, you're right. I think it was two years ago they decided to kind of make some alterations to the schedule and cut down on some of that travel for the players. Right, yeah. maybe in the COVID years and mm-hmm. stuff. Actually, you know, and I'm sure the NBA isn't thinking about saving money, but when you think about it, it does it does kind of make sense in a way. It's okay, you got to play them X amount of times so here. We're just... We'll do them back to back. I'm sure the team ownership groups are not uh, sad about having to not charter a jet for that extra trip to, uh, right, to go Detroit, back and Michigan. Forth. Yeah, 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 right to go to go back and forth and do that. So yeah, but it's it, it's just it's kind of an odd sort of thing that you play the same team on the same court two times in a row when it's a non playoff situation. Yeah, I was like double, triple, quadruple checking the schedule before like doing our sports updates because I was like, wait, they're in Milwaukee again. That doesn't make any sense. They were just here and. No, sure enough, you're absolutely right. The uh, the change in schedule and resting players and all that stuff is uh, is why. So you might have seen some Detroit Pistons hanging around the past couple of days. Absolutely, see like really tall guys walking around. The all right, that that could be what it is. So, um, but the Bucks play tonight. They are the only undefeated team in the NBA. The stock market. If you've been following Mike's reports, it's all over the map today. Because here, here, and and every time I kind of check in, it's it's just been bouncing around. Here's what happened: the Federal Reserve raised the prime interest rate by another 0.75 points. So in the, what they're doing in an effort to try to 
tame inflation. What the Federal Reserve do is doing is they are increasing the interest rate that banks have to pay when they borrow money. And the idea is that if you make if you raise the interest rate and you make it more expensive to borrow money, it will it will slow down the amount of of, of borrowing. You know, somebody who and, and then it trickles down. If that's what the bank has to pay, then they turn around and they raise the rates that you're going to have to pay. I mean the thirty year mortgage now over over 7%. It hasn't been that high in in years. So the idea is, okay, if we're concerned about people borrowing money and then spending it, we raise the interest rate to over 7%. That's going to make it too expensive for some people, so they won't borrow the money, they won't buy the houses, whatever. It's just, it's a very, very imprecise way to deal with it. So they raised it 0.75, and that was expected and they've apparently hinted that they're going to continue to raise rates, but they might do it at a smaller rate. And so the stock market is kind of digesting that. The Dow Jones is pretty much flat. The Nasdaq is down about one point. But um, that's that's what's going on. It's it, people are trying to guess how, how is the Federal Reserve going to deal with inflation? How much higher are they going to do continue to raise interest rates? And for years, technology stocks that were just you know uh, were, were just through the roof. High interest rates hurt them because typically they will be borrowing money to try to develop new products and things like that. And if the cost of borrowing money goes up, well, you know, their profits end up going down. So that's what's going on. If you wonder, if you were looking at the stock markets, hey, it was down 200 points, now it's even, or it was at one point in time up 100 points, now it's even. The the smart money is trying to figure out how to digest this. Okay, speaking of smart money, Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. And there, there's all sorts of controversy about, you know, he's, he came in and he's pretty much cleaned house and he's fired a lot of top executives at, at Twitter and things of the like. Um, and there's all this controversy saying, okay, is he going to is he going to allow people back on Twitter that have been kicked off before and things like that? That, to me, is not the, the most interesting aspect of the story. He is apparently considering, in an effort to raise money— He's apparently considering charging for Twitter. And you'd be able to, the way I understand this, you would be able to still participate on Twitter for free. But if you wanted, um, for example, to be one of those those blue check people, you know, if you go on Twitter and they, they call it verified, where Twitter verifies that, that you are who you are, what you'd have to do is you would have to pay $8 a month for a subscription offering. And their hope is that, I mean, right now they have about 424,000 verified users. They say if 10% of their verified users paid $8 a month, they would generate an extra $4 million in revenue per year. Um, and if they charge more than that, they would generate more. But anyhow, he's considering going to a, a pay model. The first thing that's being thrown out is for this blue check thing, the, the verified users, 8 bucks a month. But obviously, one of the other things that's there is, okay, considering using a, a model where if you wanted to participate in Twitter, on Twitter, you would you would have to pay something. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, I, I just... I, I am not a Facebook person. I, I just I never got into it. I think somewhere along the line I have a Facebook account that they might have 
deleted or tossed me off of for, for not using it because I didn't use it for years and years. And I'm just not interested in Facebook. My wife will use Facebook from time to time to check up on on various friends of hers that are on Facebook as well. And you can see people are posting pictures where they went on vacation or these are the grandkids or stuff like that. But as far as like Facebook for a, a tool or keeping up with current in, information, not not so much. Twitter, I, I use Twitter professionally. I mean, and you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty, and I, I post I post things because it I view it as part of of my job. And occasionally, in, in addition to well, the, the posts I have about like current events and stuff, occasionally I'll, I'll post a photograph of some personal stuff that, that's happening. If my wife and I are out for our anniversary or something like that, but but that's how I use Twitter. I, I do make Twitter searches because sometimes I'm looking for interesting news stories, and sometimes I will find stuff on Twitter that I find to be interesting, and then I, I end up perhaps you know pursuing that, and it turns into a topic I do on the radio or something like that. So I do use Twitter now. If I had to pay $8 a month to use Twitter, I'd be thinking long and hard about that. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Would you pay to access various forms of social media if Twitter were to – and again, right now I think what he's just talking about is for this this verified blue check thing. But I I think there is – this possibility that he'd like to go to a model where in addition to just relying on advertising dollars, there was some component of a subscription that people paid for. Would you pay to access Twitter or any of these other sort of mediums that are out there? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. The day I got to pay $8 a month to use Twitter is probably the day I stop using Twitter, but that's just me. What about you? We discuss in just a moment, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. So Elon Musk purchases Twitter for $44 billion. He has in billion dollars. $44 billion. It's still still just an eye-opening amount to me. And one of the things he does, he wants to figure out how to better monetize his investment. So what he does, he's now, he fires a lot of the top brass. And now he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. If you want to be, we're, we're looking at different models, but as a starting point, if you want to be one of those verified users, the people with the blue check, which means they verify that you are who you say you are, it's going to cost you $8 a month. To, to be the verified user. And we're also going to look at other models, including, you know, maybe starting to charge other people for participating on Twitter. My general sense is that the day Twitter starts charging me personally anything to be on Twitter is the day I probably say goodbye to Twitter. But that's just me. Jeff, I'm a verified user, but I will not pay per month to keep my verification. It's not worth the benefits, in my opinion. Jeff, people used to say we would not pay for TV or radio. I can see paying for social media. Well, okay. Um, Jeff, I really don't use Twitter. When Elon finally purchased it, I was actually thinking of reestablishing my account. But after I read the news report on the matter, I decided not to. A one-time fee I could see, but a monthly fee for a platform that's just loaded with chatter, I don't see the value in that purchase. Um, and it will also not reduce the ads, and it will uh, will it will only reduce the ads and not get rid of them. Jeff, I'm not a Twitter user, but certainly wouldn't pay for it, especially with the new ownership. Social media is both a blessing and a curse. Let's talk to Don in Green Bay. Don, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Another great show, Jeff. Thank you, sir. Um, what do you think? I think the, the always great, but uh, I think the situation. I have a Twitter. I'm I'm closer to your age than a younger person. I I don't post anything because I'm of the generation that thinks nobody cares about my opinion anyhow. <laughs> but the younger generation. I have a 19 year old. He's a second year college student, and his senior year of high school. He's a football player. They had a big meeting and said, "You can get us. You can look up us us." Look us up on Facebook, and not one kid had a Facebook account. If you start charging for Twitter, they'll go to Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram. They'll find another source. The technology is always evolving. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it matters to LeBron James that he's got a verified account so someone can't steal his identity, quote-unquote. But to Don, <laughs> I don't need a verified account because... Nobody's going to go Don number two and right. they're going to think it's me, yeah. you know? Right. Or, so, or, or hashtag I, the real I, Don or whatever. Yeah. yeah, no, thank, I think you're right. right yeah. You know? No, I get it. I mean, thanks for calling. And, and, and if you take it that next step farther, further and you decide, okay, well, it's, we're going to do verified users first and then we're going to, you know, charge even a nominal fee, five bucks a month, four bucks a month or whatever to participate in the platform. I think you're right. People are going to find other, other choices. This continues to be the battle that the, the news media plays and, and they're, it, it's trying to get people to pay for the digital subscriptions. I mean, that that's the battle right now. And, and that's, I think, long-term going to determine, for example, the future of, of like newspapers because n nobody reads the Dead Tree newspaper anymore, or almost nobody reads it. It costs a lot to print it. It costs a lot to deliver it. The news that is in there is largely dated because stuff's on the Internet and it appears in the paper three or four days later. Other than you know, people now at, over the age of 55, I don't think there's anybody who gets a, a newspaper paper at, at all. And so given the fact that people still want information, all right, they're, they're looking for sources. So the problem like the media has, the, the old style, the dead tree newspapers have, is convincing people to pay money for the digital subscriptions. And then how do you generate enough money from the digital subscription to, again, keep your, uh, your employees, to keep a newsroom going and stuff like that? And that's a challenge. And I don't know how they ultimately get past it. But I agree with you. It's the same thing for social media. You start charging even any amount of money for this, and they're going to find other forums where they're not being charged for. And I, I do acknowledge that there was a time where people said, oh, you know, nobody would, no, as, as long as you can get free radio, nobody would pay for radio. But, but again, if you look at, for example, for people who are paying for subscriptions to satellite radio, it's because it offers something different than the terrestrial radio does. I mean, different types of channels, different types of programming, and availability constantly. So there's that. And, and TV is the same thing. I mean, you've got the over-the-air TV, but the people who are paying for streaming services or whatever, they're getting a lot more or getting a lot different than if they're just getting the over-the-air streaming services. With, with Twitter, I don't know how you change that. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. For Facebook, I probably would pay a small fee because I have a lot more invested in it with like different pictures I've put in there and with people I've uh, want to stay in contact with. But for Twitter, I would be the invisible man if they started any fee. <laughs> I'd be gone very quickly because I just use it to follow different public figures yeah. and participate in polls, you know, from people like you and your colleagues. And if you and your colleagues left, I'd be gone even quicker. <laughs> well, I, it's, I think, thanks for calling. I mean, it, it's funny because, I, I mean, like, for example, my Twitter account, 
It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. It's I don't have a blue check. It's it's not it's not verified. It never it it just it never was significant enough to me to to do that. And if I guess at some point in time, if they started charging for that, like I say, I, I guarantee you that that's the time where unless Good Karma Brands wants to pay for it, and I doubt that they would, that that's the time where we just kind of stop doing that. I just I, I think. <sighs> There, there is going to be more effort to monetize this stuff, and I understand why with Elon Musk's investment in this, you know, he, he's looking for all sorts of extra ways that you can make money. I'm just not sure that this is the way to do it. I think people people are still going to be reluctant to pay for stuff over the Internet, especially places where the, the content is being created by people. It's not like It's not like it's the New York Times, and it's not like the reporters that are creating the content. It's just... You know, contents is being being created by media personalities or just, you know, everybody who wants to express their opinions on stuff. Well, you know, are you going to are you going to really, you know, pay money to, I don't know, find out about, you know, what your neighbor thinks on Twitter? I, I, I don't know. Just look at the yard signs he has put up and then go from there. If you think you are hearing a lot of abortion ads on the radio in connection with political advertising, if it, you think that you are seeing on television a lot of abortion ads, if you think that when you, you know, like log on to various websites and you get these pop-up ads and that there seems to be a lot about abortion going on, you, you are right. The Washington Post has a piece about this today. Um, Washington Post did an analysis of data from Ad Impact, which is an outfit that tracks television and digital ad spending. Here's what they found. of Democratic candidates and issue groups' TV advertising dollars in five states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Now, these are states where you've got competitive races, um, uh, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Yeah, those certainly for sure. So anyhow, 45% of all the advertising dollars spent by Democrats um, was spent— on abortion ads, <laughs> it's it. That's that's it. the The next two, let's see, um, education ten percent, crime eight percent. So I mean, it's just this is. I mean, and we'll we'll find out on Tuesday whether. I mean, I believe it was a huge tactical mistake because I think abortion ads can only take you so far as an issue. But you know, we'll, we'll know after the results on Tuesday. But if you think, my God, it seems like like every ad is an abortion ad. Well, no, you're wrong. Not every ad is an abortion ad. Every other ad is an abortion ad. And that's, that is the basket that uh, Democrats and their interest allies have decided to put their eggs in this election season. And like I say, we'll, we'll know in a couple of days whether or not that was a wise choice or not. There is a um, there's more stories emerging about the 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 nutcase who broke into the Pelosi house the, the other day. And I, I get texts from people who who really want to see this. This is Republicans or this is this who want to see it in political terms. And the, the truth of the matter is the guy that did this was just a psycho. 
and apparently all across the map politically the last couple years going down the sort of like the right-wing rabbit hole. But before that, it was down the left-wing rabbit hole, and he was just a nut. And I understand what's a little bit disturbing to me is you have so many people who want to see this, oh, this is just the political stuff, as opposed to seeing what the Pelosi story really to me is about, which is that you have these dangerously mentally ill people that are out on the street and are willing to act out on it. And that's that's where I think the conversation needs to be had as opposed to saying, oh, this is Republican or this is Democrat or whatever. No, it's mentally ill people. And and I understand that some people have their partisan blinders on so much that they don't want to see that. But that's not the aspect of the, this story that's kind of troubling as it emerges. I, I admit I was wondering at the time, how can – okay, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House – she is, what, third in line for the presidency of the United States, second in line, you know, beyond the president. Um, how, can, how can a crazy guy with a hammer, you know, bust into her house? And, and, and how, how can you end up doing this? Well, well now we're starting to get more details that emerge. Part of it was that she, she had left for Washington, and so when she left, most of her security detail went with her. Uh, but but most of the security, I don't I don't know what was was left of that. But more importantly, they apparently they have cameras that are are constantly on her residence, and this is run by like the the Capitol Police. Here here's the story. This is from the Washington Post. Inside the command center for the U.S. Capitol Police, a handful of officers were going through their routines early Friday morning, cycling through live feeds from the department's 1,800 cameras used to monitor the nearby Capitol complex as well as some points beyond. When an officer stopped on a screen showing a darkened street nearly 3,000 miles away, police lights were flashing outside the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, officials say. The officer in D.C. quickly pulled up additional angle cameras from around Pelosi's home. So they've got cameras that are trained on the home and began to backtrack, watching recordings from the minutes before San Francisco police arrived. There on camera was a man with a hammer breaking a glass panel and entering the speaker's home, according to three people familiar with how Capitol Police learned of the break-in. The 911 call and the struggle inside the home that followed have led to charges of attempted homicide on the speaker's husband, etc. The incident also put a um, spotlight on the immensity of law enforcement members, of law enforcement trying to protect members of, of Congress. But... It goes on to say, if Capitol Police were going to stop an attack at the home of any member of Congress, they had perhaps the best chance to do so at Pelosi's because they've got cameras all over. So they're monitoring it. They're filming the place. But nobody is apparently watching this. This is, I guess, it's sort of like, you know, the story we had a while back where there was the woman that was attacked in the hospital parking lot, and you had the cameras that were there. So the they saw the attack. The attack was captured by the cameras, but there was nobody monitoring the cameras and nobody paying attention to watch this in real time. Um, it's it's a variation of what happened when the guy died on the, the Kilbourne Street Bridge. You've got cameras there, but in this case, they, they say that the cameras aren't good enough to when the sun is at a certain angle or whatever. You you can't see whether there's people on the bridge, which raises the question of why do we have the cameras? If they're, they're not going to be able to, if, if under certain circumstances, you're not going to be able to see people or cars on the bridge before you raise the bridge, why do you have the cameras? If that's what your security thing is, 
All right, if that's what your fail-safe is, you need either figure out better cameras or maybe go do away with the concept of cameras and have somebody live on the bridge. This is the same sort of thing. If it's a security thing and you want to provide protection to, in this case, the, the Speaker of the House of Representatives and you want to monitor her house and you've got the cameras that are set up, what good is it to have the cameras there filming stuff if nobody's watching the cameras in real time. Now, I understand there's a lot of cameras, and I understand that this might be a daunting sort of thing, and maybe, 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 if you're going to use the cameras, you need to have more Capitol Police officers that are assigned to monitoring the cameras. But, I mean, I think it's a fair question to say, how did this nutcase, you know, break a window, you know, with a hammer, get in and and cause all this havoc, and how was it that nobody noticed him doing this at the Speaker of the House of Representatives? And the answer, we all know it. He he did it. He did it on the cameras. Nobody was watching. And, And so it wasn't until... Paul Pelosi ends up calling 911 that people find out that you've got this going on. My only point in this is maybe to take a step back and, again, forget Republican, forget Democrat. You know, we live in crazy times. You know, maybe if we're going to go to all the trouble of, I don't know, putting up security cameras outside people's homes with the idea that we're going to monitor what goes on outside those homes, maybe, just maybe, somebody should be looking at the cameras. I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable position to take. So somebody could say, hey, wait a second, there, there's something going on here. We see this guy walking across the, the lawn, and it looks like he's looks like he's banging on a window. Maybe at that point in time, you, you push the button, and the, the, it notifies the San Francisco police that maybe they better get over there. This is something that I, I don't know that it can be completely prevented, but I, I think the extent of the injuries probably could have been reduced greatly if— Somebody had been watching the cameras, somebody saw the intruder, somebody saw the guy breaking the window with a hammer, and then you called the cops right away. They would have gotten there sooner, and I think it's fair to say that this wouldn't have been as bad a situation as it possibly would have. My only point here is, regardless of partisanship, if you're going to take the trouble and the expense of having security cameras, it doesn't do any good unless you're going to have people that are monitoring them in real time, and apparently that's not how it works. Go figure. Well, you can tell that there's one person feeling the heat with the upcoming gubernatorial election, and that would be Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm, who's decided to go public. Here, here's what he says. He says that Tim Michaels, Tim Michaels is, is elected. It's going to be he's using dangerous rhetoric when he talks about putting troops in the street and prosecutors in his pocket. And that should be of concern to everyone. But what Michael says is, I'm going to back, back the blue. I'm going to stand with the men and women in law enforcement. I'm going to catch and these, and these catch and release DAs, and that would be John Chisholm, that are letting these bad guys out on the streets the next day like Daryl Brooks. I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to replace them. We will have rule of law again. So that, that's obviously distressing to John Chisholm because you know, when he ran for office, he, he ran on this platform that— he was going to release people, that he didn't want to put people in prison, and he was going to try to find all sorts of alternatives to this. And remember, he said he, he knew that you know his policies would result in some people dying, but he was willing to take that risk. Well, we saw 
how that equation worked out with Daryl Brooks, and we saw the fact that you have you know people that are you know, six people are dead, countless others that are injured. And as I said at the time of the Daryl Brooks, the Daryl Brooks incident, this this was not atypical. By that I mean this was not. This is the tip of the iceberg because the district attorney's office in Milwaukee County under Chisholm has been catch and release. It's been, we don't want to put people in prison unless we absolutely have to. We want to, we want to appease the community groups that are out there that don't want to pe- look, let lock people up. And that is what our overall philosophy is going to be. That's why a lot of dangerous people got bail when they shouldn't have. Um, a lot of sentencings that should have been a lot greater than they were weren't because the district attorney's office and these, this philosophy stems from the top. John, John Chisholm is a soft on crime. Let's turn them loose. Let's try to find any alternative we can to incarceration, and then we'll live with the consequences. Well, we're seeing what those consequences are, an absolutely out-of-control homicide rate, um, car thefts that are just through the roof, armed robberies, and people that are afraid for their life you know, in, in the largest community, the largest city in the state of Wisconsin. And that doesn't happen overnight. It happens with years and years and years of this philosophy of let's turn them loose. So Chisholm is clearly, I think, feeling the heat on this because, you know, Michaels is saying, well, you know, I, I might look at removing John Chisholm. Now, having said that, having said that, and this is where you may disagree with me, if if Tim Michaels is elected do I think John Chisholm should have been should be tossed out of office immediately? And my answer to you is no, I, I, I don't. There is a statute that allows the governor to, in the face of a citizen complaint, replace a district attorney. But what that that district attorney can be fired for cause. But historically, what cause has meant is that you have an example of criminal misconduct or a serious ethical lapse, etc. And and I don't think that you've seen that from Chisholm. What you have is what you get. Chisholm has made no bones about the fact that this is who he is. He's a turn loose guy. He doesn't want to put people in prison unless he absolutely has to do it. He doesn't want to put juveniles in juvenile detention unless they absolutely have to do it. And that's the way he's run his office for years and years. In his defense, though, he hasn't made any secret of that. That's the way he presents to Milwaukee County voters. And Milwaukee County voters have elected him and reelected him and reelected him and will have a choice, assuming he runs again, and I don't— I just I can't imagine he's going to win. But if he runs again, you know, this this will be an issue that will be out there and voters will have the opportunity to decide whether they want more of the same, whether they still want to continue to live in an environment where, again, you've got this catch and release policy and people like Daryl Brooks are turned loose on the streets to to kill with impunity. Voters will have that decision. But um Chisholm is clearly feeling the the heat on this because I think he's afraid that, you know, when Tim Michaels takes over as governor, if Tim Michaels takes over as governor, that's what's going to happen. Michaels is going to say, okay, I'm going to start working on trying to clear out these district attorneys whose policies have contributed to the out-of-control crime problem. My advice to, in that case, it would be Governor Michaels, would be I'd hold off on this. I'd let the voters see what they, they see. And again, it's not like John Chisholm is something different than he's ever pretended to be. He's never pretended to be a tough—well, 
maybe in some of the campaign ads. But, I mean, in general, if you watch the way that office operates, he's never indicated that he's a tough-on-crime prosecutor. This is who he is. He gets the awards from the groups for finding alternatives to putting people in prison. That's what he is all about, and that's what he was elected to do. Well, now I think people in Milwaukee County are starting to see what happens when you elect somebody like that, but I think it's a voter's choice. So do do I think that Tim Michaels, if he's the governor, should move in on day one and fire John Chisholm? No, I don't think he should do that. I think that you let the voters make that decision. And if Chisholm runs again, and again, I'm not sure that's what's going to happen because I think he's going to look at it objectively. And even in Milwaukee County, I don't see how he gets reelected. But if he runs again, that's the decision that the voters get to make. The voters get to decide what sort of community they want to live in. Do you want to live in a community where a district attorney turns a guy like Daryl Brooks loose on that type of bail and turns people like Daryl Brooks loose on those types of bail on a regular basis? Or do you want somebody who's legitimately serious about trying to lock people up? But that's a decision for the voters to make. So I understand why John Chisholm is starting to feel the heat in this because he knows that it's entirely possible that that he could get fired by the governor. Do I think the governor should do that? No. Do I think Chisholm should be fired? Absolutely. But it should come in November of 2024 if he chooses to run again for re-election.